Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, just one verse. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Former President Donald Trump, in a speech given to his supporters on January 6th, 2021. What should protesters do? Well, we've got to stay on the street, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know that we mean business. Representative Maxine Waters, responding to a reporter's question, describing how people should have responded in the event that Derek Chauvin had not been convicted of all charges for the killing of George Floyd. Now, I'm guessing almost everyone here, no matter what your persuasion is, believe that those two statements have nothing in common. But I would argue they have at least one thing in common. Anger. They have anger in common. They were both fueled by anger. And anger is a dangerous and a tricky thing. It's so dangerous and tricky that it ended up being included among the big seven, among the seven deadly sins, among the seven capital vices. And our focus this morning is on that very tricky and dangerous of vices known as anger, or as the church referred to it historically, wrath. And this morning, I want to look at that vice with you. We will follow our our consistent methodology of trying to define what that means. What is this vice about? We'll try to demonstrate what it looks like and, and demonstrate how it's harmful in our lives. And then we will go to the area of dealing with it. How can we as Christians kick this habit? How can we deal with anger in our lives? So define it, demonstrate it, deal with it. We'll begin by defining it. Let's define anger. The Google Dictionary defines anger as a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. Merriam-Webster defines it as a strong feeling of displeasure and usually of antagonism. Now, the reality is, we all know what anger is, right? It's not something I need to spend a lot of time defining it. The one commonality between those two definitions is this idea of a strong feeling. There's an intensity to anger. It, it rushes through us. It comes quickly upon us. It is an intense emotion. And we've all felt it. We all know what we're talking about this morning when I use that word anger. We all know what it is. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on defining it. The trickier question is, is it good or bad? That's kind of what Heidi was trying to address here in the children's message. Is anger something good or is it bad or is it both? And we get mixed messages in the Bible, don't we? I mean, I just read the text there from Colossians 3.8. But now you must get rid of all such things. Anger. Get rid of it, Paul says. Unequivocally, get rid of it. But then in Ephesians 4.26, an epistle penned by the same author, Paul says, Be angry, but do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. So which is it? 
Are we supposed to get rid of this anger or are we just supposed to, you know, keep it for a while, just make sure it's gone by sundown? Or as Phyllis Diller put it, never go to bed mad, stay up and fight. She has a lot of great things to say about anger, by the way. <laughs> a lot of good jokes in Phyllis Diller. So is anger good or is it bad? Let's muddy the waters a little bit more here. Jesus, right? Jesus is facing criticism for healing somebody on the Sabbath. And, he's, and in Mark 3, 5, he looked around at them in anger. He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Or what about when God reveals himself to Moses? Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. I take that meaning that as God has a fuse, right? He has a, a threshold for anger. It's slow, but we know about God's wrath, right? We got, the scriptures talk about God's wrath. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God. Without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. That's Jonathan Edwards in perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached in the Americas. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. So what is it? Is anger good or is it bad? That is a really hard question. That is a complex question. And I want to take a little time to think through that with you this morning. Is anger good or is it bad? I mean, I think we all agree that there exists bad anger, right? That's easy to, to diagnose. We know that there's a bad form of anger. I think we also all know that if God exhibits anger, divine anger has to be good by definition. So the real question isn't whether bad human anger exists or that good divine anger exists. They both do. We all know that. The real question, I think, is to narrow it real tightly, to bring the aperture together and the focus down, is whether there's such a thing as good human anger. I think that's ultimately the question. Is there such a thing as good human anger? And that's what I want to think about just a little bit more. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to move from the define it to the demonstrated section. It's a little bit different than I have done before. But what I want to do in the demonstrated section is to demonstrate a couple of candidates for good human anger. Here are two things that people have used and said, well, these are two areas where anger is justified on the human level. So let's look at those two examples. Let's demonstrate what possible candidates may be for this good human anger. The first one is this. Anger over the denigration of holy things. A holy anger, right? And of course, as Heidi mentioned, the, the classic text for this is Jesus going into the temple and knocking over the, the tables, right? Trying to bring his Lord's house, his father's house, I should say, you know, return it to a house of prayer. Isn't that holy anger? And isn't that something that we humans should replicate in our own lives? When we see God's name being tarnished, shouldn't we rise up, turn over the tables and be like Jesus? What would Jesus do? 
He defended his father's name. Should we not do the same thing? What do you think? Well, that kind of happened a little bit, right? Remember when Jesus was being arrested and Simon Peter was a little torqued about the whole thing, right? He was a little ticked off by it. What did he do? He took out the sword. Right? He tried to defend his Lord. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Put your sword back into its sheath. You see, even in this area of defending God's name and saying we can exercise a holy anger as humans and defend God, it's a precarious thing to do for one simple reason. We ain't Jesus. All right? Everyone agree? <laughs> We're not God. And God really doesn't need us to defend his honor or to protect his name, does he? Most of my life, when I have seen people try to exercise holy anger, it has gone completely wrong. Think about how many times people leave the church and they leave over something like they are so angry and the excuse is always, I'm defending God. Are you? Is that what it's about? I like to call this dynamic the Martin Luther syndrome. It's the idea that, well, you look at Martin Luther. We, we, we're all supposed to be like Martin Luther. I wanted to be like Martin Luther. When I was first uh, convinced of Reformed theology, I, was, you know, I embraced the idea that we shouldn't have images of Jesus in our sanctuary. I still believe that. We shouldn't have pictures of, of Christ uh, in, our, in our sanctuaries. Um, well, pictures or whatever those pictures are. Um, they mostly go wrong. And so I was in a church that had those, and I decided I was going to take those down. I did. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I'm telling you the story after you hired me as your pastor. So. <laughs> I thought I was Martin Luther King. I was the, you know, I was, not Martin Luther King. Sorry, Martin Luther. I thought I was the uh, second, you know, coming of Martin Luther. It's the Martin Luther syndrome. Really, I was just being a jerk. Holy anger, it's a tricky business. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't have zeal for the house of the Lord, that we shouldn't have zeal for God's name and the holiness of God. We should have all of those things, but saying that we can exercise holy anger as humans and do it right, that is a tricky thing. It does happen, I'll grant it, but it's very rare. So I'm not sure that passes muster as good human anger. Let me give you candidate number two for good human anger. Here's the other candidate. Anger over injustice. Anger over injustice. Shouldn't we be angry over things like racism, abuse, crimes against the oppressed and the innocent? Isn't it right to be angry over those things? What do you think? Well, in the Christian tradition, there have been two points of view on this. The first one is, I think, the most obvious, the most visceral one. And that is the one championed by Aquinas. 
Aquinas argued, yes, you should be angry over injustice. It is good human anger to do that. Otherwise, what you have is complacency and apathy. You should be angry over those things. And I think that resonates with me, right? It resonates with you, I'm guessing, at a visceral and gut level. Yes, we should be angry. When we see injustice, when we see people being mistreated, people being harmed, the oppressed, we should care about, we should be angry. But there is another view in the Christian tradition. And it takes a little bit more thought uh, to really kind of wrap your head around it. It's a little more challenging. It challenged me because I was naturally inclined to the other view. Now hear me, this view in the Christian tradition does not argue that we should be complacent and apathetic about things like racism and injustice and the innocents being harmed. It is not arguing that. But this view does hold that even then, humans should not use anger as the main response to injustice. Dallas Willard put it this way, he expressed this view, there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. You see what he's saying? He's not saying we shouldn't have a response, he's just saying that anger should not be the fuel. MLK, this time Martin Luther King Jr. He said, we must evolve for all human conflict a method that rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. Not anger. Love. You see, this view holds that anger is just too flammable. It is just not something Christians should mess around with, should get engaged with, because it's very dangerous. Isn't that what really Jesus also said to us? Jesus got angry, but what did he say to us? Matthew 5, 22. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you shall be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you shall be liable to the hell of fire. In the Sermon on the Mount. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see the tension? I can tell you, uh, I've been really ministered to by this particular sermon series because each one of these has been so convicting to me personally. Each one of these vices, I can see them operating in my life. And personally, what I want to do in this sermon is to justify anger as a response for a variety of things. And I want to justify it because I know it is a vice with which I wrestle. How about you? I mean, I can make a lot of good arguments for anger. I mean, anger, when I'm angry, sometimes I'm really productive. I mean, it motivates me. You ever feel that way? Doesn't anger motivate you? It motivates me. It's a powerful motivator. It gives me great clarity in my vision and my thought. And then anger can be so cathartic. Isn't there times you just need to scream and to yell? 
William Willimon, in his book, he talks about this. Uh, he's obviously a, a professor at, at Duke Divinity, so he's talking about a time on the campus when there were a couple of sexual assaults, and people gathered together on campus, and they held a scream in, and they just got together, and they just screamed over abuse. Don't you feel like screaming sometimes? And isn't it sometimes helpful? I mean, a good old rant? Ask counsel. I do that sometimes in council meetings. <laughs> Ask my wife. <laughs> She'll tell you that too, right? It's, sometimes you do that. You take this, something's bothering you. And, you know, and Michelle, we'll, we'll do this. Like she'll come home from work or I'll come home from work. And we just let, let it loose, not at each other, but about something. We let it out in anger. We say the things we can't say that are welled up inside of us. Isn't anger justified? How about anger at cancer? Isn't it right to be angry at cancer, what it does to our bodies, to people's lives? I see a lot of reasons to justify anger. How about you? But then the Christian tradition, at least this portion of it, comes back and says, hold on. Back up the truck, so to speak. Wait a minute. We want to be very careful in sanctifying and justifying anger. Why? Why was this strain part of the Christian tradition? What was the concern? Well, this gets us to that second part of demonstrating. Demonstrating how it's harmful. How is anger harmful? And this is why the Christian tradition strongly warned, at least the strain of it, strongly warned against indulging in anger. Because it's harmful. And here's three ways that it's harmful for us. The first one is this. Anger blinds us to Christ. Anger blinds us to Christ. The 5th century monk John Cassian said this. The emotion of wrath blinds the eyes of the soul and prevents us from seeing the Son of Righteousness, that is Jesus Christ. It blinds us from seeing Christ. And Cassian goes on to say, it doesn't matter the motive. The underlying motive for the anger does not matter to this blindness. He wrote, it is irrelevant whether a layer of gold or one of lead or of some other metal is placed over the eyes. The preciousness of the metal, the righteousness of the motive, so to speak, it does not change the fact of blindness. Anger has a Christ-eclipsing effect Per se, you experience anger, according to Cassian, it blinds your ability to see Christ. All you can see when you are anger, angry is your own anger, is your own self. We, what we don't see is Jesus. It serves to our pride and to our self, Cassian said. When you are anger, angry, it eclipses you, it makes you unable to see Christ. It blinds you to Christ. The second way it was harmful, it is harmful to us, is that anger, once unleashed, is hard to control. This is why there's such caution about it. Even if you have a right motive, even if it starts out justified and right in your mind, it can easily go out of control like a forest fire burning out of control beyond what you intended it to do. Now think about your own life, how many times this happens. It can go out of control in a variety of ways. One is it goes out of control and hits the wrong target. 
I'm reading this book, uh, The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell. It's about precision bombing, about this goal. You know, can we avoid carpet bombing? Can we actually just hit the right target and, and prevent collateral damage? Well, when you're angry, a lot of times it's impossible to be precise. How many times when you've been angry about something, have you taken that anger out on someone else? Someone you love, someone who is totally innocent in it, it becomes misdirected, it causes collateral damage, it hits the wrong target. A second way it goes out of control is by becoming disproportionate. Right? Maybe you start out justified in your anger, but boy, it takes hold, right? And all of a sudden it becomes revenge. It becomes escalation. It becomes a one-upmanship on someone else, escalating the problem. What are we seeing in the Middle East right now in the tragedy that is going on? Both sides feel justified in their anger. And what is happening is an escalation of violence based on that anger. Anger, once unleashed, is hard to control. It can become disproportionate, lead to escalating responses. Third, it can go out of control in its duration. And its duration. Once you let that out of the bag, so to speak, once you indulge in anger, one of the risks you take, one of the ways it's harmful is it can take root in your soul. Perhaps this is what Apostle Paul was talking about. You know, get rid of this by, by, by sundown because if you let it fester, it'll take root in you and be with you. Some people are angry people. And they've been angry for a long time. And don't underestimate how powerful anger, anger is to tap into that emotion in people. You want to get people motivated. You plant anger in them, build resentment in them, and it mutates into vengeance, into a grudge, even into passive-aggressive ways. Anger can become a malignancy. Again, William Willimon tells this story of a woman who was in his divinity class, and on the first day of class, she spoke about an abuse against her by her husband, or now her ex-husband, 10 years ago. And then he notes every single class this came up, every time she opened her mouth, it was about what happened 10 years ago, her anger over that event. And he writes this in his book, I had the unpleasant task of telling her that if she could not do something about that anger, she would never be able to function in ministry. There was no way that she could help others until she first helped herself. I told her, I never met your ex-husband, and I still hate him for his continuing abuse of you through devastating effects of your anger. See, this is how it can go out of control. It can become resonant in our souls. It can be harbored in our souls. And it can last for a long time. It can be with us, that grudge that we hold. It can become a malignancy in our souls. It blinds us to Christ. It burns out of control. It can become a malignancy in our soul. This is why the Christian tradition has been very cautious in justifying anger. This is, it's summed up well by Psalm 37 verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. I don't know if I have convinced you, but I hope at least I'm giving you an opportunity to think through anger. 
Think about it, because it is harmful once unleashed. That is the Christian warning. That's why it's part of the seven deadly sins. So we've looked at it. We've defined it. We've talked about uh, some candidates for good human anger. We've talked about why it is harmful. And now, finally, I want to look at how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it in our lives? How do we kick this habit? Well, let me give you the usual. I think we have to do those two things. We have to recognize it in our lives, and then we have to resist it. So let's look at that rubric. First of all, we need to recognize that anger is our problem. Now, here's the reality. So in this sermon, I've been toying around with this hypothetical, theoretical idea that there's this moral dilemma around anger. Is anger good? Is it bad? How do we figure that out? Human anger, you know, I've been, I've been talking about this complex question of, of moral philosophy, of theology, but let's face reality, people. 99% of the anger we deal with in our life doesn't even get near the penumbra of that moral question, Right? I mean, most of the time when you are feeling anger, it's not about the oppressed. It's not about racism or things like that. You are getting angry about a whole bunch of other things that do not even come close. If you're anything like me, 99% of your anger does not even get near that moral question at all. It's not about zealousness over God, and it's not about the oppressed. It's about me. When I get angry... It's about me, someone interrupting my agenda, some idiot who can't drive, right? That's what it is. Some slow cashier at the checkout line. That's what makes me angry. It's not a moral dilemma. Let's recognize that. And the way I think we recognize that, Dr. DeYoung in her book, Littering Vices, has a wonderful little exercise. I really encourage you to do it. What she suggests to do is to take one week of your life. And journal. Write down every single time you got angry that week. Write down what the trigger was for that. Write down the intensity between one and five, one being the least intense, five being the most intense feeling of anger. And then she says, do that for a week, leave that journal, and come back two weeks later and look at it. And see what that reveals about your anger. She did this herself. She did it with her class, and she wrote this about the kind of looking back on that in retrospect, what she learned from that exercise. She writes this, A few weeks later, with cooler heads and more distance from the incidents that provoked us, we reviewed our journal responses. How many episodes of anger could we label righteous, justified, proportionate, and good? And what patterns emerged? Were we angry too often or too often angry? Frequently, reactions that seemed perfectly justified and rational at the time ended up looking petty and self-serving in retrospect. And the situations that had occasioned our anger seemed, in hindsight, more trivial than genuinely offensive. She goes on, our records were also useful in helping us better see what sorts of things tended to set us off, our anger triggers. No stranger to studying the vices, I fully expected to discover some bad anger, even a preponderance of it in the results. But here's what she concludes, but the verdict was even harsher than I anticipated. A vanishingly small amount, if any, of our anger counted as good. If this had been a test, we would have flunked outright. We were stunned. Suddenly, Cassian's unflinching advice to lay down all anger didn't seem so radical anymore. 
I encourage you, take it, do it, do it for a week. See what you conclude about anger in your life. If nothing else, that journaling process will help you to recognize the problem. And also help you to resist it. Because what that process will do will identify your anger triggers. And this gets to the second part of the application. How do you resist it? Well, look at that journal. What is it that sets you off? Uh, she talks about driving, is it for her, right? And that's, it, that's it for me, too. Uh, I, I, I do that all. She suggests, you know, uh, pretending Jesus is in the front seat with you. I don't like that idea. <laughs> Especially when I'm up there at five-mile line when they've got the traffic backed up for half an hour, right? I'm... But she says, kind of isolate and identify those anger triggers and do something about them. You know, if one of the... Okay, I am an impatient person. The two go together, anger and impatience. So one of the great things that I need to do in my life is to slow down. To not be hurrying, because when I'm hurrying, when I'm impatient, I'm already queued up for it, baby. I'm already ready to go. The fuse is ready to, to be lit. So perhaps if I slowed down, if I avoided being hurried or rushed, I'd be less likely, less inclined to be angry. Find out what it is. And try to make that trigger less likely to happen. Reduce your physical busyness, your tiredness. Exercise. Eat well. Take care of yourself. Get enough sleep. Observe the Sabbath. That's a great way to deal with anger. Be reoriented in, in your spiritual life. Trust God with the management of the universe. I mean, most of my anger is because I don't think God's doing a great job at things. That's really what it comes down to. How about breathing? Just breathing. I mean, yoga is not a bad idea, folks. And breathing is a very good idea. Focusing on your breathing just to calm the engine down. Next time the fuse starts to get lit, you know, just do that. Okay, I'm just going to center myself. I'm going to focus on my breathing. Do a, do a body scan. Just stop. Right? You feel it coming on you, that rush of anger to stop and think about your toes. And then just go up your body to your head. Just distract yourself from it. Those are all good suggestions. But most of all is this. The most important thing, I think, with dealing with anger is this. Practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. And this is where Christianity becomes so useful and vital in resisting anger, is because we are the religion of forgiveness. Anger is a response to the sense of being wronged. The sense of being wronged, it is self-protective, it is a defensive response, it emerges because something else is going on inside of us. Uh, psychologists talk about it as being a secondary emotion, that something else is giving rise to your anger. And what we need to do is to get to the root of that, and so often the root of that is sin in yourself or in someone else. And we need to deal with that through forgiveness, not only of ourselves, to know that God has forgiven us, but also forgiveness of others. Forgiveness is the cure for anger, and failing to forgive is just bad for your health. Anne Lamott put it this way, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. That's good. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. We need 
to forgive, to be well, to deal with anger. Jesus says this to us in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about anger. He says, you know, if you're going to go to that altar, if you're going to that place of worship and you have some type of conflict with someone, first put down everything and go and take care of it. You need to get rid of it. Reconcile. And reconciling requires forgiveness. Jesus told us to pray daily. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven others. Forgiven our debtors. You want to resist anger, learn to forgive. Forgive the idiot that's driving you know, terribly. Forgive the slow person at the line. Forgive the person who interrupts your agenda for the day. That might be the most important thing you do all day. I often deal with this. I'm a pastor, right? I want to write my sermon. I want my time in the study. And inevitably, somebody calls and has a problem. How rude of them. <laughs> Follow the example of Jesus. At the moment of the greatest injustice in history, Jesus said this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Anger blinds us to Christ. The solution, the way we resist it, is by looking to Christ, by seeing him, and seeing and following his example. If you want to deal with anger in your life, slow down, look at Jesus, and forgive yourself, and forgive others. Put down your anger. Get rid of it. Let's pray.